Christina Bryan Fitzgibbons, a genetic and family investigator. And I'm Jody Klugman Rabb, a licensed marriage and family therapist and licensed professional clinical counselor. Welcome to Sex Lies and the Truth. Lynn's story is what we might start calling a crowded MPE. Four people were involved in Lynn's conception, and not in a donor or adoption sort of way, the old-fashioned way. Eventually, triangulating other family members into the secret, the outcome was a stranglehold on Lynn's identity and family relationships, and would influence relationships with men for decades. As a reminder, MPE stands for Misattributed Paternal or Parentage Event. I was born in Calgary, Alberta in 1976. My parents got divorced right after I was born. So my dad lived three hours north of Calgary, up past Edmonton. And as children, we used to take the bus to go visit Christmas or Easter or summer holidays. I never really had a very close relationship with my dad. He got more and more distant, uh, I would say, from high school and on. So I didn't really have a very close relationship with him in my adult life. And some of the patterns I had in my dating life, I was starting to attribute to the daddy issues or no father around kind of issues. And when I was around 30 years old, there was a family rumor that kind of came out from my oldest brother. So I had two older brothers and my oldest brother was friends with my biological father's uh, boys. So there was three boys in that family too. And my oldest brother was teasing the, one of the guys and saying, you should date my sister. And he said, no, she might be my sister too. So my brother shared this story with me and I was like, what is going on here? And at that time when I was 30, I'm 44 years old now, when I was 30, I did approach my mom and my dad. I phoned them. My mom said she had to call me back and uh, didn't want to discuss it in that moment. And when I phoned my dad, he just said, oh, I'm 99% sure you're mine and I can't remember exactly what he said at the time, but it was enough for me to kind of shrink back and just be like, okay. Living in Vancouver at the time, the questions began to take hold, especially around who she looked like. Lynn would look at herself in the mirror and realize no part of her looked like her father. Focusing on individual features like her nose, she couldn't help but wonder who she did look like. A few days after Lynn tried to talk to her mother about it, her mother phoned back, opening with, are you sitting down? That's when Lynn learned her conception story. So at the time, my mom had my two brothers, four and two years old, and she had something really wrong with her knee. So she had to go up to Edmonton for knee surgery. And my dad picked her up after the surgery and they stopped in, I believe high level at the time, to where my biological father and his wife, who had been married since they are 16, and they are still married today, uh, and they spent the weekend with them. And my dad had convinced, I guess the group of them, the four of them, had decided to do what my dad at the time called a couple swab. When my mom told me the story, she called it a wife swab, 
which I found very fascinating in itself. So yeah, I guess they spent the weekend together. There was drinks. Um, I imagine after knee surgery that my mom was probably still coming down off some of the drugs. She told me after uh, the night happened, she was in the shower right after and she started to cry. And my dad said, um, my mom said, what if I got pregnant? She did tell me she was on the birth control pill at the time too. But I guess surgery kind of null and voids the pill. She said she was crying in the shower, said, what if I get pregnant? And my dad said, it doesn't matter. You're my wife. The child will be mine. And that's how they all decided to deal with it at that time. And it was kind of swept under the rug after that. My mother and I had a very difficult relationship and have continued to have a difficult relationship in my adult life. I really don't think I was ready to prepare or was prepared to deal with an identity crisis. And I think that I sensed that she wanted me to keep a lid on the secret too. Like they were both kind of like sweeping it under the rug. Lynn chose to let it go at that time. She was ill-equipped to deal with the stress and crisis of it and chose to go along with the 99% possibility she was her dad's daughter, even though it's more like 50% possibility. Lynn wondered if it really mattered since her dad wasn't really there for her anyway. She pushed it into the background, went on living her life, had a baby at 32 years old, and pushed it back down any time it crept back up. And then about two years ago, when my son was 10 years old, he came home from school and they were learning about Ancestry. And he kept seeing Ancestry.ca commercials on TV and was like, Mom, I want an Ancestry kit for Christmas. So I was like, sure. I ordered the kit. And as soon as we got his results, a few cousins down was the Christensen name. So I knew of... Uh, my biological father's name because they were still family friends of my dad's brother and my aunt and very much involved with my oldest brother. Uh, for some reason, my oldest brother was developed a relationship with this couple. Um, they lived close by. They shared farm equipment. My brother was like right in there. My two brothers, I haven't talked to in over a decade. They both had a lot of issues and being the youngest in the family, I seem to get like blamed for a lot of things. And so my strategy was always just to move away from them. And there was some other kinds of like emotional, physical abuse from my two brothers. So I really just moving away was the best thing to protect myself from my family. My mom did a lot of pitting siblings against siblings as well. So I think that really impacted our relationships in that sense. So my immediate family, my mom and my two brothers, I have very little to do with today. In the beginning of the pandemic, I decided to write my biological father a letter uh, with the encouragement from my aunt, who was still family friends with them. And she had also gone through meeting her biological father in her 50s, and she had a great outcome. And she just really thought that if my name was showing on Ancestry, then there's probably family members on that side that were wondering about my presence on there as well, because they knew 
the Wolgameth last name. So, yeah, so I wrote them a letter thinking that they would respond with open arms. My aunt said, I know them to be kind and loving people with a ton of space in their heart. Their three boys would love to get to know you, I'm sure. So I was like, great, let's do this. And uh, it didn't go that way. The other woman in the wife swap, Judy, called Lynn's aunt, upset at her for getting involved. She also forbade her sons and her sister from getting involved with Lynn. Sometimes people with the biggest, most open hearts have no room to let secrets out. But the surprises just keep coming. And so that was quite upsetting. But I also went into it knowing there was a chance that I would be rejected. Lo and behold, like a week and a half later, after I sent the letter and Judy freaked out, told us all to leave them alone, I backed right off. But a cousin, a first cousin found out because I guess Jim and Judy were at their lake and they were selling their cabin and the boys were all there and the cousins were there and they found out. So this one cousin, Dana reached out and she filled me in on the family tree and who was who. And she was sending me pictures saying, you look so much like this cousin and you have my sister's smile and this cousin's nose. And it was like overwhelming at first entirely. Um, trying to piece it all together. My biological father has eight siblings. There was nine of them in total. So pretty soon after that cousin reached out, her mom reached out. And then the aunt who lives here on Vancouver Island reached out. And today I have been in contact with all three of the boys as well. And they've chosen to get to know me regardless of what their mother says and have said, we have the right to get to know you. And just this past Saturday, I talked to the oldest. I'm still the youngest in the family order now because I have five half-brothers. <laughs> but I just talked to the oldest, and it was just a wonderful conversation. He welcomed me with open arms. And I'm really um, so grateful that all of this family came out and welcomed me, regardless of me not meeting my biological father yet. And, you know, I still hold hope that they will come around. But so far, the four adults involved in my creation have been absolutely awful. My mother's not talking to me. Although Lynn's mom seemed okay with it at the time, coming clean with the story and working through it, the tenuous connection they had made began to unravel after Lynn sent her introduction letter to Jim. It was visceral proof of the couple's experience the weekend Lynn's mom had knee surgery, and it was too much to tolerate. Rumors are one thing, but when people are confronted with their truths, the walls go up and the attacks follow. Jim and Judy confronted Lynn's parents, triggering Lynn's mom to turn against her, citing Lynn went about it the wrong way. He currently was in a dispute with his brother, my uncle and my aunt. So he kind of wrapped this situation into their fight and told me that they were using me as a pawn, and my aunt and uncle. And I don't believe that to be true at all because my aunt and uncle have been showing up, coming out to visit my son and I since he was little. Uh, they very much show me love. They show up when my dad doesn't. So 
Yeah, just interesting how my dad has turned on me. He wrote me off. He said he wants nothing to do with me ever again, which didn't really bother me because he hasn't my whole adult life anyway. So uh, I just found it interesting that uh, the blame and the projection and telling me I went about it the wrong way, like, you know, my child asking for an ancestry kit is wrong <laughs> suddenly. So um, I kind of just let that roll. I can so see their denial, their blame and their rejection. So apparently Judy confided in my aunt about that night 44 years ago. So my aunt was suddenly responsible for holding this secret about me too. So they all would look at me. And my aunt even admitted later that she had a hard time getting close to me because she didn't want to be the one that leaked the secret. Although she was one of my favorite aunts. When I did spend time with her, I adored being with her, but it started to make sense why a lot of the family had very little to do with me. They were scared to be around me because you look at me and I look exactly like Jim and they were all still friends. So yeah, my feeling of not belonging and yearning for family, it just all suddenly started to make sense why a lot of them couldn't actually be with me because they didn't want to be the one to reveal the secret. The concept of doing something the right or wrong way is an ongoing conversation for us on this podcast. There are a few hard truths I think it is worth repeating. The wrong thing to do is shut the door on a human being trying to learn where they belong. The wrong thing to do is treat an innocent person with disrespect and contempt. The wrong thing to do is not face your own stuff. The wrong thing to do is withhold important information like medical history or ancestral history. Every NPE and their families are different, and that means there really is no one-size-fits-all approach to make everything work smoothly. Yet after working with so many cases and listening to stories on this podcast, we see patterns of what tends to work well and what doesn't. What doesn't work is for adults who made a choice to engage their sexuality with consent and experimentation and then not take seriously the possible outcome. Who now stands? before them and asks for dialogue to talk about how she came into the world as a result of their combined four actions. Does that sound right to you? Yeah, someone over on that side leaked the secret. And I, my feeling is that it was actually Judy because she leaked the secret to my aunt. And so for her to be the most upset and trying to slam it down and tell everybody to have nothing to do with me was just shocking. And apparently she even said to my aunt, like way back then, like, you know, uh, Terry could be carrying Jim's baby. What should I do? And, you know, was trying to deal with it at that time too. So yeah, I think they just got so wrapped up in keeping this a secret that they just, you know, all these years later, suddenly they're in their seventies and it's being exposed. Like when Jude's, my son's results came in, I messaged my dad and said, I think it's time we do that DNA test. Jude did his for a school project and the Christensen name showed up. So could you please do your ancestry and I'm going to do mine. He said, I'm happy to support you and whatever you want. I'm just in Mexico right now. I'll be back in April. 
and I hadn't heard from him for a year. Actually, I hadn't heard from him at all. There was no follow-up from him, no offer to support me through this. Unfortunately for Lynn, her father continued to ghost her, never providing the support he pledged or the ancestry test. Lynn went ahead with her own test without him and was able to have a cousin on her father's side test in his place. This proved that there was no genetic connection. Like so many MPE, the names showing up in her DNA matches were unknown to her. The cousin who tested for Lynn was also friends with Sonny, the youngest of Lynn's new half-brothers, and he cross-referenced the names on his and Lynn's profiles. They shared many of the same family members, providing the final confirmation that Lynn was never her father's daughter. You know, we were able to figure it out pretty quick without my dad's involvement either, but I think that really upset him. He started telling me that I should have followed up with him. And I basically wrote in my letter back to him that I've stopped chasing him a long time ago. Yeah, I led nine women to write and share their story in a book that we just launched at the beginning of pandemic too. And this part of my story isn't even in that. It was really about my pattern with men and um, how I was trying to break free from that pattern. And we launched Woman Rise and then I got my ancestry kit back and I was like, okay, next book. Yeah, I think every time like a thought would come up there would be a level of curiosity for sure, but then I would quickly just bury it. And I had too much going on in my life. I was um, an independent mom. I was going back to school as a young mom. I just had too much stress in my life that I couldn't, I couldn't bear to go there. So I think that's why when my son turned 10, like, you know, things were getting easier. It, it wasn't, it was, I was ready to take a look. We went to my cousin's wedding when I was around that age too, around 30, and Jim and Judy were there. And they were all staring at me, and I felt that, and it was so awkward. I had gone home for a Christmas, and my middle brother had physically beat me up when I was uh, visiting for Christmas and got in an argument with my mom because my mom was doing this thing where she would just like, be almost embarrassed of me and like trying to shut me up in front of her third husband. In this case, ready to take a look meant upsetting the status quo more, which always comes with consequences. Some pretty awful consequences for Lynn. And I just could never have a voice. And that's just why I just ran away and moved away because my, my family treated me so weird. Like I was just trying to be joyful for a Christmas present I got. And she's like giving me dirty looks like, shh, don't do that. Or it was like, everything I did was wrong. And I started to realize that even with her siblings, she really got in the way of me having a relationship with any of them. It was really glaring for me last year when her husband died from ALS and I went home to support her through it uh, and picked her up after her husband did medical assisted dying and we were in her place and my uncle came to visit and he hadn't seen me in like 20 years and we were trying to connect and she literally moved her body in between us and cut me off and he just looked at her like you too you're still the same 
And I was just watching it like, wow, like she really doesn't want me to connect with anyone. She's really blocked me. And like to the point where I saw her body physically block me from connecting with my uncle. I was just like blown away. I mean, everyone sees it that way, except for them. Everyone's like, it's not even about the past. Like, who cares what they got up to? It was the 70s. I was like, when I first asked my mom about it back when I was 30, I found myself going back into my usual role with her and like making it all better for her. I was like, oh, mom, you guys were young. You were only 25. Like, who isn't wild in their 20s? It was the 70s. Like, I was trying to make it all okay for them. And I wasn't actually dealing with my own feelings around it because it's never been about me with her. It's always been about her. Sexuality in the 70s has a lot to do with my own conception story. So it's something I've explored a lot in the MPE context. Human beings are sexual in nature because without that instinct, there would be no promotion of the species. Somewhere in the course of human history, Religion and culture took control of those drives, and no matter how hard the culture tried to control reproduction, sexuality is going to win out every time, simply because it's programmed, and there's no one doing that. Ultimately, that means that men and women will subvert the rules of culture. But for the moms of MPE, they are still highly influenced by the culture that they rebelled against, even though they are living in a more inclusive and equal culture now. It's too strong an influence, I think, because it is equated to life and death in the mom's minds. If the secret of their poor judgment and lack of control gets out, their survival becomes critical as the family and community they need for survival shuns them. All of this culminates in a young girl, ultimately a woman, who recognizes she looks more like the Norwegian family friends than the German-Ukrainian family and notices patterns in relationships. I have green eyes and blonde hair. I was the only one with green eyes and blonde hair in my family. Like, where did that come from? I think as I started getting more curious into my 40s and as I was, you know, standing on more solid ground than I was uh, when I was in survival mode in my early 30s. Like in 2015, I dated a narcissist and it was a really quick relationship in five months it went from zero to 100 and back down to zero and ended in a restraining order and I was like what is going on and I had a mentor from my college who dealt with these personality types and started teaching me about narcissistic people and so I don't even think I was really ready to see it in my mom yet I was still trying to have this beautiful mother-daughter relationship and Everything just happens in the right time and when you're ready for it. And when I did the deep work in writing my story and in Woman Rise with support of eight other women, I think that's where I started learning about like what female relationships can look like and that you can be seen in your wild woman and be held in it. Lynn used her experience to facilitate a writing project that ultimately led to her published work, Woman Rising which was largely informed by her identity journey. It's okay to show feelings and emotions where I was always taught it wasn't. So I really had a lot of support in my life and I was really ready to dive into it. And now I'm just like, I got to tell this story everywhere because <laughs> it. Um, I only found the NPE group a few weeks ago. And I think, Jody, you were one of the first, I, I think I even posted one of your articles in Psychology Today. 
And that's where I started seeing the similarity of the narcissistic mothers. I was like, whoa, like I'm not alone in this. So I did start to look at uh, Jim and Judy's Facebook and try to see some of the boys in their pictures. And I was showing a friend a picture of my biological father and then my, who I thought was my father. And my friend was like, oh my God, like it is clearly this man and not the other. (laughs) And so, yeah, that's in the last few years when I started to get more and more comfortable with it and start looking at photos and stuff. But even when that cousin's first reached out just over a year ago and started sending me pictures of all the women. So I found it so fascinating that in our Woman Rise writing process, we would come together and do guided visualizations and bring in our ancestors to support us through writing our story. And we did this one visualization where we had our mom's hands on our backs and then other relatives, ancestors that are no longer on the planet supporting us and holding us. And I just felt so much support from women in this. And then for me to like launch and release the story in Woman Rise and then have all these women from my biological father's side show up in full support, I was like, Mind blowing. <laughs> like, I seriously feel like we called them in in this circle of nine women. And right after they've shown up, I've never felt so much support from women in my life, from family, blood women, as I have on the Christensen side. It's no coincidence when things change based on our actions. Lynn's happiness changed her parenting. Jung calls it synchronicity. In this case, feeling accepted and nurtured by a family allowed her to continue that with her son. It's why she was able to grow herself. I couldn't be happier where I live. (laughs) I made the right choices, 100%. Self-esteem, self-efficacy. I did not believe in myself. That's why I didn't go and get a degree in my early 20s, not even my early 30s. I went back to school to get a degree when I was 37. I finally had enough support here in Victoria to believe in myself. As far as identity, I, um, yeah, I think I'm just still piecing that all together. Like who I am now as a Christensen and ancestry, like, you know, seeing Norway and Sweden and all those places. Like, I just want to go there now and put my feet in the ground. (laughs) And, you know, like I said, when I felt those ancestors showing up in support, like, I really just want to connect to that now. I found it really fascinating because they're all on the coast of Norway, too. Finally, we asked Lynn what helped her cope with the crisis and adjustment of the MPE world. To no one's surprise, it includes therapy because there's always unfinished business, of course. I wish I would have got a therapist right away. Instead, I got myself into a coach training program so I could have the support of like 20 people. (laughs) But coaching is very different than therapy. And my coach immediately saw it and told me to go get a therapist as well. So I love the blend of therapy and coaching (laughs) as a support. So yeah, as much support as possible that you can put into place for yourself and really honor so much self-care and just to be gentle and, 
you know, if you need to have a day of feeling the feelings and being angry and roaring like a lion, then go for it uh, without judgment. Just feel the feels and they too shall pass. Yeah, I would say hope is the operative word there for sure. Um, When my, okay, so I forgot a major piece of the story. So when my aunt encouraged me to write the letter, she said, you know, he's 76. There's not that much more time. You know, she said, do you want me to call him and break the ice? Because I didn't have his address. I didn't want to send a mail, a letter in the mail, because I would never know if it got to him. And I would be checking the mailbox every day like that kid still, you know. So my aunt called Jim and told him she actually was the icebreaker there. And he was over the moon. Apparently, he was in tears. He wanted to get on a plane and come meet me. He was super excited. But when he told Judy, that's when he got slammed down. And so the feeling is that he feels handcuffed in a sense that the, that he would have come and met me. And so, yeah, I still have a little bit of... Um, this dream, like, I was horseback riding at his place when I was 12 years old, I have a very vivid memory, I even wrote it in the letter. My dad took me to their acreage, and they took me horseback riding. I remember Jim to be so loving and kind. I think I was even like sitting on his lap at one point. Like, I have hope that I will get to meet him and put my arms around him someday. Like, I just have nothing but love in my heart for all of them. And, you know, even talking to the boys, they're, they're struggling with their relationship with their parents right now. And, you know, I think we all process in different times. I had no expectations of how it would look or, you know, when they would show up, but I didn't think I would have this many people show up in the last year either. The reunion is all we MPE hope for. Inclusion, recognition, and acceptance. Sometimes it comes in small forms. Letters, opened emails. Maybe we dare to hope it comes with arms around us at family gatherings, where we find our space like a puzzle piece. But it's that hope we carry into each relationship, into each letter or phone call. Just hope. Thanks to Lynn for sharing hers with us. Sex, Lies, and the Truth is written and produced by Jody Klebman-Rab and Christina Bryan Fitzgibbons. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the show, you can contact us through our website at www.sexliesandthetruth.com. If you are a fan of Sex, Lies, and the Truth and want to support us, you can do that through Patreon. Patreon is a really cool platform where fans of shows like ours can pledge a small amount each month, even just a few dollars, to support the show. You can find us there at www.patreon.com forward slash sex lies and the truth.